Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Sharif Nassim, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to my audience? Yeah, sure. Thank you, David, for having me. Yeah, so my name is Sharif Nassim. I'm the founder and managing partner of Jadar Capital, which is a VC firm focusing on investing in startups in emerging markets. I'm born and raised in Egypt. I'm an engineer by electrical engineer by education. And I've been working for the past 23 years in Middle East, North Africa, as well as Pakistan and Bangladesh in, in the telecom and technology sector. So pretty much my experience and my DNA is based in underserved emerging markets, underdeveloped markets, where there are a lot of similarities as well between these different, I would say, geographical regions. So essentially, Southeast Asia is definitely different than Middle East, different than Africa. But I mean, this gave me like an exposure to different cultures, but they're connected when you look at it from the problems perspective. I was part of Oroscom Telecom Group, which is a mobile carrier group building networks across these countries. I stayed with them for probably close to 20 years in different subsidiaries. So I started first in the enterprise sector, then I moved into the telco 2005. And this is where I spent, I mean, 15 years up till 2020. So my role was mainly working with the telcos to help them develop mobile value added services in these different, I would say, geographies and countries where in a lot of cases, the infrastructure or the traditional infrastructure is not there, like the fixed, for example, communication. But in terms of mobile penetration, it's, it's, it's high. So in a lot of cases, this was like a channel or a launch pad for most of the services to get into access to these users. So yeah, our core was actually anything other than a person calling a person or sending them a text. This falls under mobile value added services. I would define it like this. So whether this is like entertainment services or like essentials, like payments, or it could be mobile content like music streaming and video streaming or mobile payments and wallets and so on. This is, I would say, my background as a technology operator. And maybe later, yeah, we can touch base on, I mean, how I transitioned from like technology, being a technology operator, investing in technology. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth. But before we get there, you mentioned that there's some similarities between these different markets or different countries. Could you give us an example of a learning you had in, say, Bangladesh or Pakistan that you then applied in a different market? Yeah, I think most of these markets, as I said, they have infrastructure problems that are very similar. And this can be in, in the communications side where most of these regions, they lack the fixed communication. So they don't have like fixed phones at home. And all of a sudden, their actually means of communication was actually the mobile line that they have. This created a lot in terms of the, I would say, accelerating the digital transformation. Because again, it's hard, for example, to, and I can give an example from maybe the financial sector. Okay. So it's hard for a person if they're banked through a traditional brick and mortar bank where they go to the branch and finish their stuff. They get used to this and now it's, it's hard to convince them to move 
to digitally, I mean, do stuff online or use a mobile phone, or you can actually open a bank account at a non-bank or non-traditional banking institution. It's, it's very hard. Where when you look at countries that the majority of the population, they are unbanked. They never actually dealt with the bank. Mm. So for them, managing money yeah. has been through the non-traditional community kind of solutions. So once they find like a fintech company or a solution, mobile app on, on the mobile, it's actually easier for them to adopt it because they don't compare it to, oh, that's we have a trust in the formal financial institutions and the banking sectors. They were never actually a customer there. So I think in most of this country, and this is obvious, for example, in Africa, in Kenya with M-Pesa and it's similar case as well in Pakistan, where people there that are unbanked, they can easily actually transform and adopt newer technology. And can, they can easily and trust to open an account in any bank or a digital bank or a 100% online bank. So, yeah, I think these are some of the similarities. I think the two core things that I think is common between these regions are number one, the, the, the infrastructure, the lack of the traditional infrastructure, and probably the financial sector, definitely. It's very similar where most of the population are unbanked. So the transition to the digital banking was easier, I would say. That to me sounds like opportunity. I was speaking to a couple of businessmen in Vietnam, and in some respects, they compared themselves to the US market and said, we are X number of years behind their words. And I said, well, I don't think it's going to take you that many years to catch up and perhaps surpass. Because in some ways, as you rightly pointed out, I believe in, in Myanmar and in India, Southeast Asia as well, with the smartphones, they skipped the whole landline and they just went straight into, I guess it'd be Web3 coming up, I guess, uh, but the, the latest <laughs> version. And it makes them more agile in some respects. Do you see it as opportunity or do you see any challenges in that transition? It's definitely a mix between, yeah, definitely challenges and opportunities. But I think the opportunities are, uh, I would say, leading the way more than the challenges in the continent, especially in Africa. When you look at the population and the actually demographics of the population, I think it's easy. It's easy for them to adopt these new technologies compared to maybe other regions where maybe the population is old a little bit. So it's it's hard for like, you know, a 50 year old or 60 year old person to convince them, okay, you can you can order grocery to via a mobile app or you can do you can send money through a mobile app and so on. So I think the, the opportunities are huge. Even there is a lack, as I said, a lack in the common and the traditional banking, for example, and financial services. But given that the population in these areas like Middle East and emerging mm -hmm. markets in general, and more specifically, maybe Africa, the population is so young. I think this creates a huge opportunity for transforming them into like users that use these services. I can see why you would want to be very involved and drawn to that space. They're probably going to be the the leaders for us in the the next generation. In some respects, I, I look at it to use a linguistic example. Is your native language Arabic? Yeah, it's Arabic. Are there any words in English that are borrowed from Arabic that you noticed? Not really. I think like algebra might be one that I can think of. I don't speak much. Or yeah, algebra is one algorithm. Oh, algorithm, okay. 
Yeah, there are some. I was wondering if when faced with those words in English, if you have trouble pronouncing it in English because your native language already addressed that word and it comes yeah. from that word. Yeah. I ran into that challenge myself in Japan because there's some loan words in Japanese from English and I had the hardest time. It was easier for me to learn like Japanese words rather than learn English words in the Japanese pronunciation. And I think it's similar to what you addressed there where if you already have a brick and mortar, you already have a bank, it's very difficult to change that. It's like water uh, flowing downhill. It's like, it's already there. It, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's built for the 1950s. And we know that we should change for 2030, but it's really hard to. Whereas someone who doesn't have that goes straight to like, you know, the latest and greatest. That's very true. That's exactly the case, I think. Yeah. So you're coming from electrical engineering, which is, you know, impressive. And you're, you're very busy and you're you're helping a lot of people. What did you spot? What made you make the shift to get into, get, get so involved with venture capital? Yeah. I think since I graduated, I always worked, I would say, I've never worked as, as a hardcore engineering, I would say, job. So I always had this mix between like working on a product and trying to sell this product. So yeah, I understand the product from the engineering point of view, but I do not develop this product. My, my concern was always, I want to make sure that users or people are using this product in the way they should. And also what are the services that we, or the features we can offer them. So I always had these, I would say, mix between engineering and business and finance as well. But I think that what led to the transition was working with a lot of, I would say, small providers. At that time, they were not like startups. They're, they're maybe 2010, 2008. We were working with small providers that they have a service and they come to us saying, okay, we want, we know that you have access to mobile consumers and subscribers across mobile operators in different countries. We want to launch our service. We want to use this, as I said, the launch pad that can get us access to these users, especially if they develop their solution as a mobile app. So it definitely becomes even more naturally that they have to approach this. So working with these, I mean, I've been watching how they operate. They were, they were very, I mean, some of them, they were large institutions, large companies and enterprises. For example, in content, we, we used to work with like, you know, Rotana, Sony, Warner, Universal. These are large companies. But there were also some other service providers that came to us that were very small. And they, I, I kept watching how they operate and how they grew. And then this pushed me into, you know, the startups world. And I started to help them as well. I mean, what started as a business relation, then they would say, okay, we're, we're now getting into our expansion plan. We would probably prepare a pitch deck if you want to have a look at it and maybe help us with some comments or feedback and so on. And also, I mean, in a lot of cases, okay, they need help with the business plan, with the financial model and so on. So I started to do this probably 2012, 2013, helping them, helping startups, whether partners, friends, friends of friends with their pitch decks. Then I think the real transition happened 2015. I became an investor myself in a fund, a VC fund, actually, Egypt. And at that time, I was curious to understand more and more about VCs and how life inside a VC looks like. What did they do? How they pick the startups? What do they look at? And so I started to learn more and more about VCs and 
startups, how to evaluate them, the ecosystem, they connect to different players, like different accelerators, the local angel groups and angel networks in different countries and so on. And the more I got involved, the more I actually fell in love with, you know, the, the whole startups ecosystem and how dynamic it is. And also, I mean, I think personally, I, I love like having this horizontal knowledge as opposed to probably a vertical one. So start working with startups actually allowed me to do this. I mean, you can look at companies building something in health tech, for example, medical solution or financial solution, e-commerce, different stuff. So this allowed me as well to probably look at different industries, which is something I like. I like to understand actually how industry like insurance works, apart from the technology part. I mean, the traditional insurance. And then see how technology actually can come and maybe transform it, disrupt it, or maybe add some efficiencies or, I mean, help this industry to transform and be performed in a better way. So I think, yeah, I mean, the real transition point was when I became an LP or an investor in the fund. So this forced me as well to start to learn more and more about, okay, where where did I put my money? I put it in a VC fund. I know how, I want to know how they operate this and how they manage to, you know, achieve the returns they promised they would. Then probably two years after becoming an LP in this fund, I decided this is something I would love probably to be doing. I want to move from being a technology operator to a technology investor. I love technology, so I want to remain definitely in this sector, but maybe instead of operating tech companies and operating different technology and products, I want to invest in these companies. So I started probably at that time to have this, I would say, plan, definitely by studying a lot and starting to build my network across different countries in emerging markets. And I was lucky again, I, I think because of my job at Oroscom actually entitled me to travel a lot across these markets. I had the chance to connect to the different ecosystem players in different countries, like in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and in Egypt, in Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa as well. We, we used to operate in Zimbabwe. We used to do some business as well with operators in Kenya and Nigeria and so on. So. This allowed me to start to look at the different players in the startup ecosystem in these countries and develop my connections and so on. In 2020, I actually left the company and I moved to the States in June 2020. It was in the middle of COVID, actually. What timing? Yeah, perfect timing, I know. <laughs> and at that time, I, I started Jadar Capital. And my aim was to go directly and raise a fund. But deep down, I, I, I knew that I need to spend maybe a couple of years to learn more. And I got enrolled as well in a couple of programs in US. And at that time, I came across the syndicate model. So I decided, yes, this is something probably I, I think that makes more sense. I mean, rather than moving directly from being maybe an angel investor and jumping directly to raise the first fund. I thought, yeah, the syndicate is something probably that would build or help me build a deeper track record. Because again, it's it's investing other people's money in a sense, but not through raising a fund where the money sits and then you deploy it out of the fund. The syndicate operates in a different way where you build like a network 
or a marketplace between the startups and people that are interested in the region, but not necessarily that they have the time to look at 40 startups or 50 startups every week, which is something I used to do. They might also as well don't have the enough experience how to do due diligence, how to look at the startups, how to do the valuation and so on. And also another thing was for the syndicate, a lot of these start, uh, these investors actually, they're micro, I would say micro retail investors. They don't want to write like 100K or 50K checks in, in every startup. Maybe they want to do smaller amounts, but in many startups, more than uh, maybe one or two every quarter or so. I found that that's an opportunity. I have the relation with these kind of investors across different markets. And also my presence here in the United States as well helped me as well, because a lot of them, they they want to invest in emerging markets, but they said, we have no experience there. We know that a lot of things are going on in Pakistan, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. That's actually uh, something that we want to do. We want to diversify our investments and so on, but we don't know how to do it. So I said, yeah, I mean, I will build the syndicate and this will be like the bridge between those individuals and the startups and then... I will actually raise the capital from these individuals through separate vehicles, like separate SPV for every startup. And then we invest in startups. I started this in in 2021. I've been doing this for the past probably two or 2.5 years, two and a half years. We invested more than 18 startups in, in emerging markets in general. As I said, in Pakistan, Bangladesh, as well as multiple countries in, in, in Africa as well. This was actually the, I would say, the journey for the transformation. But since day one, when I started this, my target was to move from this syndicate and go to build a, a fully fledged VC firm where we will have like fund one, fund two or fund three, and maybe either thematic funds, like each fund would focus on a specific sector or maybe regional as well. We can have like a fund for Africa, a fund later on for Southeast Asia and so on. So yeah, I mean, the, the syndication period for me was a transition period that I was conscious that that's the way I will build the track record. And I used to compare myself to a startup that is bootstrapped for two years trying to build, but instead of building attraction for the startup, I was building the track record for, for a VC firm. That's probably yeah, the story, how I transitioned. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. We spoke earlier about how you're now focusing more on Africa. And that word Africa is used in many different ways to mean many different things. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize it's difficult to use that word accurately because it's so big. What does Africa mean to you when you say that you're focusing on Africa? Could you please, it's not a trick question. I'm just, I want to understand what it is that, that you see and what is it that draws you there? Yeah, I think for me, it's, and I agree with you. I mean, Africa comes with different meanings. It's all about perception as well. When I first started to speak to people about investing in Africa, they were under the impression, okay, I mean, yeah, Africa, we can look at it as one big country. So it's cohesive, unique. But again, having worked on the continent, I mean, for more than 20 years, I understand that definitely these are really 54 different countries. It's not really like, you know, and different cultures, even within, within like each North country. Africa region, Egypt is different than Morocco, different than Algeria, different than Libya. 
East Africa as well, even you can look at it as one block, but still there are differences between Kenya and Tanzania. You, you cannot right. approach Kenya the same way you would approach Tanzania. You need to understand how things are there, how things in terms of the infrastructure, the problems, even the culture, the people, how they do business and everything. So it's definitely, it's a huge, I would say, population block, large number of countries, different cultures and everything. But I love Africa. I love the continent in general. I love the people there. I think that they are brilliant people that are totally underprivileged and they deserve, I mean, similar services to any individual. I mean, comparing them to any individual in Europe, for example, or U.S., they deserve and they can use actually the same services. But the problem is to find, you know, the the means to develop and solve the problems that they have in parallel with, of course, infrastructure problems being solved as well. So this made me, I mean, and again, for the syndication for two years, I had the privilege on, I mean, focusing on emerging markets at large. So I had the chance to work with startups in uh, Middle East, in North Africa, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in different parts of the world. And this helped me as well to know exactly where I see myself being able to support the startups that I intend to invest in. And I think after a couple of, say, maybe after 10 investments, you start to realize, yeah, I mean, I think I can add more value and be maybe having a more unique, I would say, proposition with working with startups across Africa. And this is where I decided as well to move and raise the fund as well that I started to raise now. It's it's a Pan-African fund. It's not focusing on emerging markets at large. It's very specific, focusing okay. on specific sectors in Africa. Yeah, so that's how I see the continent. Okay, thank you. So many questions come up when you're talking about that. So what are some of the most exciting sectors or industries that you see on the Pan-African market? Of course, the financial sector has been and will remain for a while a core sector, as I said. But I think now for me, I look at the financial sector as we're transforming from, I would say, fintech 1.0, for example, to the future of fintech, fintech 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever. It's more of the, I would say, how to do things smartly now. I mean, how to embed the needed financial services across different sectors as well. How to look at different indices, like for example, the construction, the real estate, the agriculture sector, and the trade, import and export between countries and so on in Africa. So all these are sectors that I think are probably are due to take off. And Definitely the financial part would be like, I would say the foundation that needs to be there. So probably we need now to see companies doing financial services more as fintech as a service. They will avail different financial services for these new wave of companies, especially with the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. I think a lot of trade will actually start to happen between different countries, which is currently non-existent almost non-existence whenever. I mean, if you look at any country across Africa, the majority of the GDP is is internal products as well as probably trade with maybe China and India and other countries. But due to a lot of infrastructure problems and probably scattered providers across the continent, it's very, very hard 
to build up on, on this trade between countries. So I think with the activation of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, I think it came into effect probably last quarter, last year, probably. And yeah, just recent, less than a year. So I think we will start now to see, especially the SME sector, the small and medium importers and exporters, because the large exporters, actually, they can afford, for example, to go to a bank and open an LC, and they usually are large companies working with each other. There is trust and so on. But there is a long tail, actually, of a lot of local products that can actually move and be exported and imported between different African countries. But when you speak to these small importers and exporters and ask them, What's the main problem that is stopping you to do this? It's one of the problems there is the trust. So again, the buyer and the seller in different countries, they're small, they don't know each other. So again, they go like, you know, send me the money, I will send you the goods. The other side, no, 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 I don't know you well. Send me the goods, I will send you the money on the spot. So, and they end up not doing actually the transaction. So there are a lot of businesses is actually waiting for platforms and solutions to solve this problem. It can be as simple as, you know, a trusted escrow service provider, for example, trade finance provider to help, I mean, with the small preparations that maybe an exporter need to be doing, maybe in packaging or whatever, but they don't have enough, like, you know, capital. And what they need is really like 60 or 90 days of financing just to make sure that they're able to put the things they want to export, they package it, they prepare it, and they send it to the other country. So I think companies and startups trying to work in this area, which is huge, by the way, it's not a single sector. This means fulfillment centers, digital freight companies, supply chain companies, as I said, the financial sector as well, trade financing, escrow services, a lot of services actually can be built and startups can be built to solve this problem and help actually to empower and enable this treaty, the trade treaty, the African Continental Federal Agreement to come into effect faster and more actually efficiently. Mm. Seems like the perfect place at the perfect time. A connected Africa would be a site to behold for sure. Right now, it seems like most of the development and investment would be somewhat siloed within a certain region or country. Yeah. But I guess with your ability, having worked for a fifth of a century in different countries, because you're able to make some connections that other people can't and maybe transfer some knowledge so that, well, just for example, what you might learn in Nigeria, you can then apply 50% right away in Kenya. And so are you seeing that this kind of compounding effect? Yeah, of course, that happens a lot. And actually across the 18 portfolio companies, a lot of cases, you see like complementing services, maybe a startup in Kenya can partner with a startup from Nigeria and they complement oh, each other. And then each of the two startups, they can launch in other countries and so on. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of actually, I would say, cross-pollination and yeah. partnership that it's a privilege for VCs and investors that they see actually the bigger picture, especially if these are companies within their portfolio companies. So it's easy for them actually to connect them and make sure that they can both grow working together and expanding in different markets together. Are you seeing some challenges culturally as you go from 
far-flung region to far-flung region? Or is it pretty universal that you're like, everyone needs finance. And once you show people what you can offer, everyone's on board. Are you facing any resistance? There is definitely the localization part. And again, that goes or takes us back again to the perception of people think Africa as one country. It's, It's actually different and you need to localize the global or the universal problem. The universal problem is probably the same, which is definitely, I mean, a person in living outside of this capital city, for example, or major cities in Côte d'Ivoire or in Nigeria or in Kenya, probably all of them, they will not have access to banks. Banks are concentrated in the major cities across Africa. So again, as I said, the universal problem is the same, but you need definitely to localize it understand culturally how people, for example, save, how they transact together, how they send money to each other. You need to understand based on every local culture and then adapt your solution to make sure that it can fit this, which is, again, it's not, I would say, it's not like a showstopper. It's just you need to understand probably and hire local people in the country you're expanding it. And then you will be able to probably launch a product that can make sense in this country and fits the culture. Okay. Is it too early to say, like to share some success stories? Yeah, I'm proud of a couple of, yeah, definitely companies. There is one actually, which was what the first investment that I've done, which was a company in the food supply chain or food grocery delivery in in Egypt that grew very fast actually in Egypt and then they expanded very fast and acquired another company in North Africa, in Morocco and Tunisia. And then they merged with a company in Saudi, which created like a unique mix of revenues, I would say, which is again, within the current, I would say, economical situation in most of the emerging markets with inflation, currency, devaluation, and so on. It was great, I mean, to see like the company operating in more than one country. And again, probably you can hedge this by getting some revenues from countries like in Saudi, UE, they're more or less, you can consider them their revenues in US dollars because their currency is stable against the US dollar it's spent for 20, 30, 40 years. This has added like sort of, you know, hedging against what's happening in emerging markets and a lot of countries with the the local currencies. And I think this company as well, positioning themselves as more of covering the whole cycle of the food supply chain. They started with what they call the Q-commerce, which is the small orders, small sized orders that usually a household do like every probably two days or three days. Usually you do it small orders, but you do it more frequently. Then they started to build the whole sides of the supply chain. So they started to look as well at the large orders, which is more of the wholesale household orders. These are the orders that usually any household do like probably once or twice a month. And then they started as well to tackle the businesses. So they targeted the Horeca business. So they started to supply for the hotels and restaurants and, you know, the the other maybe distributors as well. So I think part of the success is quickly transforming into, I would say, a full-fledged food supply chain to hedge against different issues that can happen. B2C can slow down, then they have the B2B side. Also, in terms of even investing, the past year have seen some, you know, 
challenges across the globe. I mean, all the companies that, you know, the companies like Gorillas in, in UK promising, okay, we deliver in 15 minutes and 20 minutes, they started to have like issues. So all the startups that are positioning themselves as pure, the equivalent of these kind of startups would definitely face issues in terms of looking for further investing and so on. So I think quickly realizing this and being able to position the company in a different way and augment it with other, I would say, business lines like the B2B and the wholesale part was one of the successful strategies that they implemented and they were able to grow through this strategy as well. Okay. I wonder about your role as an Egyptian in this, if that has helped you in some way uniquely, because Egypt is at once African and also Middle Eastern and also Mediterranean. It really is at the nexus of many markets and civilizations and cultures. I mentioned I was speaking to a gentleman in Istanbul who similarly said they're at the crossroads and that helps them in the startup and innovation world. Do you see your upbringing in Egypt is beneficial to you in that way? Absolutely. I think for any any investor that is investing in a specific region, I think understanding and coming from the region is very important because, again, there are a lot of problems that you will never know unless you worked or lived in these specific countries. How people do business, how they work around different stuff, because, again, we get things done in Egypt, in Africa. We have problems, but problems didn't stop like innovation, they didn't stop us from doing business and everything. But it's just the ability for the investor to understand how things are being done and understand the problems that the startups can face to be able to probably help them and guide them as well, with whether as an advisor or mentor through the process as well. What would you like to see in the next three to five years? What would you like to say to people or highlight? like a kind of change or what do you see on the horizon in the next three, five years? I would love to start seeing us as Africans believing in ourselves more. I believe that change will come from within. I mean, collectively, and I mean collectively, not just the startups ecosystem. I mean, collectively, I mean, private businesses, people in in the government, plus, you know, investors and startups If we believe that we can be the change and stop depending on like aid and believing that you getting loans from like institutions, this is the savior. It's it's not really the savior. I mean, we should believe in ourselves and start growing businesses that solve our problems. And if we did this, I think, yeah, the next 10 years, we'll see a leap in the continent, in prosperity of the people and the jobs being created and the constitute as well of the economy across the continent. Nice message. Where would you like to direct people if they want to follow what you're doing? I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I think LinkedIn is one of the probably channels that I'm very active there. I usually respond to most of the messages. So people actually, a lot of startups actually, they share their pitch decks and, and so on. So yeah. Okay, great. We'll put the link in the show notes. Well, Shari, thank you very much for speaking with us today and look forward to a bright future for you and and for all of Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And thank you for having me today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. 
I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Thank you.